Herb Alpert and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is our managing editor and big, big TV star, Dave Cameron. We begin the podcast by discussing Dave's recent, as in yesterday, Monday, his recent appearance on MLB Network's Clubhouse Confidential with host Brian Kenny, and the finer points of a TV appearance for anyone who's planning on doing something like that in his or her future. Uh, from there, we discuss quite a lot of things related to baseball, including the deadline today for arbitration-eligible players and their respective teams to exchange figures, the top free agent currently remaining on the market, that's Prince Fielder, uh, where he might end up and when. We also play another installment of the Fangraphs audio game, Baseball America Questions, which I quiz our guests, again, in this case, Dave Cameron, on which prospects rate number one in their respective organizations according to Baseball America. The most recent edition of Baseball America looks at the American League Central, and so do we. It's rife with entertainment. It's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. So it uh, went well, though. You, you seem like a real baseball analyst. Oh, except for the fact that I don't blink and everyone thinks I'm a robot. Well, one of those things is true. The, <laughs> no, uh, well, I think it, it seems like a weird model, right? Because you're just sitting in that room staring at a, a camera? Yes, like there's just a, I mean, there's a teleprompter, I think, is what like the, norm, the, the news anchors usually read off of. Uh, but all I see is a reflection of myself. So... You know, it's not like I see Brian Kenny or can see them taping the show or anything. I'm just staring down a camera with a picture of me looking back at myself. Yeah, I guess it's good that you have something to look at. Although God, I would uh, I would want it to be anything except for you that I'd be looking at. Yeah, yeah. right. I uh, maybe I'll bring a picture of you next time and tape, tape it to the person. Absolutely. Do you? Uh, they make you wear makeup? No. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, your 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 skin tone is excellent. I, that's a that's a real bonus then. Thanks. Yeah. I, uh, that's probably the studio lighting or something. Yeah. Well, I think it was a successful uh, maiden voyage, and I look forward to future future appearances. Uh, baseball, baseball, baseball. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I, I I wanted to discuss that appearance. Um, that was part of it. I mean, listen. We could discuss Montero and Pineda if you want. You've done a lot of that recently. That Sullivan yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I did that with Sullivan a little bit yesterday. I thought one one interesting outcome of it though was just was the look you gave, um, pretty thorough look you gave at the site on Monday, at yeah. the sort of balance between um, you know essentially like for Montero specifically, but then you can extrapolate from from that specific example to anyone else about whom you'd have a similar question, which is how bad of a catcher would a good offensive player have to be to not, you know, to not, to, to I guess, to, to be a DH, right? Right. And you re- you really went for it. You you came up you came up with the idea of the disaster catcher? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, I mean, the disaster catcher, If so essentially it's if everything went wrong with this particular catcher, it would it would make sense even from just what we know in terms of what we can measure. It would make sense to have that guy DH. Right. I mean, I don't even think it's everything that went wrong. I think if if you took a guy who just didn't have the physical skills to handle the position, but you were just so intent on getting offense out of the spot, 
that you stuck him there even though he didn't belong there. So, I mean, I think you can imagine, you know, a decent amount of major league players right now uh, that if you said, hey, I'm going to convert them to catcher, it would go really badly. And that's kind of my idea of what the disaster catcher would be. Is like they'd be bad at catching. They'd be bad at blocking balls in the dirt. They'd make a lot of errors. They'd be terrible at controlling the running game. Like, they would just be uh, awful in every regard. And to me, that's kind of the baseline of, you know, um, how bad could I be in order to just justify not even trying in the catcher? It's kind of the same thing of not taking a right fielder or a first baseman and putting him behind the plate because you have bad hitting catchers is kind of, it's just the reversal of when should I move a guy? Right. And, and it, it appears as though, I mean, uh, obviously we don't know precisely where Montero ranks defensively. Um, I mean, if you had to guess right now, just in terms of, again, the, the sort of amount we could measure, if you had to guess where his, his uh, catcher defense was, where, where would you put it, do you think? I'm guessing probably 20 to 25 runs below average, uh, just on controlling the running game, errors, pass balls, those kind of things. Uh, his, his career mentally really stolen base rate uh, is 80%, so you know, even guys in the minors have been able to take advantage of uh, I mean, he's got a good arm, but he's just really slow at releasing it, and his footwork's bad. So I think you get to the majors, that might drop down to, you know, 15%, and teams might run on him a lot, and that could be a significant problem. And um, So I would guess, you know, just on the things we can measure, Montero's probably 20 to 25 runs below average, maybe a little bit better than the disaster catcher, but pretty close to something along those lines. And then, of course, you know, in the piece I talked about all the things we can't measure, you know, framing and, uh, you know, not that I buy into catcher's ERA, but I think that there's something to the relationship with a catcher and a pitcher and making them comfortable. And, you know, if pitchers don't want to throw to the eye, that's a problem, and it's uh, something your teams would have to account for. Yeah. Well, I guess you'll find out, won't you? I think so. I think the Mariners are going to bring him to camp and uh, let him catch a lot in spring training, look at them with their own eyes, try and help him improve. And then my guess is they end up carrying uh, three catchers on the roster this year, Montero included. I think they'll just keep Olivo and Jaso, and the three of them will kind of uh, split time behind the play with Montero, maybe catching, I don't know, 40, 50 games. I don't think he's going to catch any more than 50. Um, and he'll DH a lot, and uh, they'll kind of evaluate him as the year goes on. And if it goes fairly well in the first half, maybe they'll trade Olivo away and really give Montero a longer look in the second half, and if it's a total disaster in the first half, they'll just give up and he'll be aged the rest of the year. Well, the Rangers really handled that well this year with Napoli, though, right? I mean, I, I don't know the precise number of games that Napoli caught, but I don't know if it was roughly half or maybe a little bit less than half. But they had him... Yeah, I think in, he ended up catching 70 games or so. Right, and they had him and Torrealba going through. Torrealba, I'm assuming, is a superior catcher defensively. Uh, but yeah. you, st- you still had opportunities to use Napoli. I wonder, and I think that I sort of discovered this at one point, looking at the Angels' usage of Napoli, uh, at least in terms of controlling the running game. Does it make sense to set up a poor uh, defensive catcher, or again, a, you know, a, a catcher who has pro- problems controlling the running game, with a with a left-handed pitcher? Yeah, I mean, I think there certainly are situations where you can spot. Uh spot him and maybe reduce his weaknesses. So, you know, if you've got a lefty with a good pickoff mount, uh, pickoff move on the mound, uh, that's one opportunity where you could kind of uh, minimize Montero's inabilities. And then I think, there, you know, there's some teams that just aren't very fast. And even if they have a, a bad defensive catcher behind the plate, they're not going to run a lot. So, you know, if you're going up against, uh, you know, the Yankees aren't necessarily the best example because they have Brett Gardner, but there's not a lot of burners in that lineup. 
Um, you know, I think if you're going against one of those teams that just doesn't have a lot of speed up and down the lineup, uh, you can put Montero back there and he wouldn't kill you. Okay. Now, uh, today is also uh, the arbitration deadline, or it's the deadline, I should say, um, for teams to, to negotiate before they exchange uh, exchange figures. Is that right? I think it just yeah. passed at uh, noon Eastern. Uh, do do we know? Have you sort of been keeping up with that? Do you know any sort of interesting developments? Uh, I mean, I think it's all pretty well expected. Uh, Matt Swartz um, had done some work for MLB Trade Rumors, where he had created a model to estimate salaries uh, for arbitration eligible guys based on their performances and service time and previous uh, contracts given to similar players. And his model's proven to be pretty accurate, usually coming in within a million dollars or so. Um, even for high-player guys and, you know, getting a few of them right on the button. So I think, by and large, we're just seeing confirmation of what we kind of already knew uh, based on his model. So, you know, a guy might come in and sign for 4.75 when he was expected to get 4.5. Or, um, but the differences are pretty minor. So I don't think we've seen anything yet that has been all that surprising. Uh, Cole Hamill's got $15 million, which is um, a lot, certainly, but uh, he's really good. So that wasn't an unexpected figure. Right, and this is the year before he hits free agency, right? Right, yeah, he'll be a free agent next winter. So we expect that to be somewhere in the range of about 80% of what, what he'd be worth in the open market? That's kind of the estimate is, uh, you know, in the last year of arbitration eligibility, guys usually seem to get around 80% of their free market value. Uh, for Hamels, I think that might be a little bit low. I think it was 80% at 15 million would put it in the 19, 20 million range. I think, uh, realistically, if Hamels stays healthy and pitches well again next year, he's going to be looking for a Sabathia type contract, maybe in 23, 24 million a year. He might not, uh, he might not get it, but I think, you know, he'd probably aim a little bit higher than an 18 or 19 million dollar a year contract next winter. And it looks like the Giants and Lincecum uh, will be going to arbitration? Yeah, I think, uh, I haven't heard anything about them resolving that. Obviously the, uh, Lincecum's a little bit of a unique situation because he was a super two, so he got paid really early in and he was able to go into arbitration with back-to-back Cy Young Awards um, and kind of say, hey, I'm historically unique. There's no one else to compare me to. Pay me more than every pitcher ever. And it's worked. And so he's gotten uh, just crazy out-of-the-line arbitration salaries based on uh, prior comparisons. And uh, I think this year they're estimating he's going to get 18 or $19 million, and he's got another year after this. So he could get $26, 27000000 million next winter. Uh, Linscombe's just going to break records every year he goes to arbitration. And so with that kind of... Uh, financial cushion, there's not a huge incentive for him to sign a long-term deal. Now, just looking at Lincecum's numbers over the last three years, his strikeout rate has uh, decreased a little bit each year, and his walk rate has increased a little bit each year. Yeah. That's usually not a great trend. It, and it, I mean, it's also something we expect from a pitcher as he ages, but I, I don't know that we've heard necessarily... I, I haven't necessarily seen a, a lot of, uh, to that effect, um, either in the, the mainstream or in the analytical communities uh i mean is that does that uh, bode poorly for his future or do you think that he's the sort of pitcher like he did by adding a changeup a couple years ago who can constantly adapt yeah i mean i, I don't think there's any question that linscombe has uh, morphed into a different pitcher than he was when he came into the league um, when he arrived he was you know 95 to 100 and uh blowing the ball past guys with absurd strikeout rates now he's more 90 to 94 and he relies really heavily on that changeup. So he's a pretty different pitcher than he was earlier in his career, and I think we need to evaluate him a little bit differently uh, rather than just looking at his career numbers and saying, oh, he's trending downwards. Uh, he is trending downwards, but he's changed. And so I think we need to uh, 
instead of looking at him and saying, oh, he's just getting worse with the same skill set, understand that he's morphed into a, a slightly different pitcher with different uh, weapons and a different approach and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't keep extrapolating downward trends. We just evaluate him on what he is right now. And right now he's a pitcher with a pretty good fastball and a devastating changeup, and those pitchers are usually pretty good. Now, in terms of other notable players who might be going to arbitration, is that something we won't know until sort of um, all the deals are announced at the deadline? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, right now you're going to see a whole bunch of teams sign their guys just to avoid the whole process of exchanging numbers. Um, but we're not, you know, very few players actually make it to arbitration every year. Um, and so I think, you know, as we get closer to spring training and the hearings uh, get scheduled, you'll see. Uh, teams at the last minute saying, you know what, I just don't want to go in that room and trash you in front of uh, you and your agent, so I'll give you the extra $100,000 to avoid the uncomfortable situation where I have to tell you how bad I think you are. Right. That's a thing that uh, seems like, and I don't know if there have been any studies done to it, but anecdotally it sounds horrible. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly teams that will, uh, just as a matter of policy, not go to arbitration. I mean, I think uh, when Bill Levesi was in Seattle, the mayor just went six or seven years without having an arbitration case. Uh, there was a pretty notable one back in 2003 or 2004 with Freddie Garcia, where uh, he w- they went to arbitration with him, fighting over, I don't know, a million, million five or something like that. And they said some not-so-great things about Freddie Garcia, and he got pretty pissed off and was pretty unhappy with the organization. And it is speculated that's one of the reasons that the Mariners uh, traded him a couple of years later is that uh, he had no interest in staying in Seattle after the organization trashed him to the States. And so I think they learned their lesson from that uh, little debacle and said, maybe this just isn't worth it. Maybe we should just pony up the extra couple hundred grand in order to not have to tell our good players that they suck. <laughs> well, it, it, why does the player have to be in the room? But they don't have to, and a lot of times they don't. Uh, go. A lot of times they'll just send their agent and the agent will take care of it. But uh, in Garcia's case, and I think in other players' cases, sometimes they're just interested and the, the, they decide they want to go and they want to hear <laughs> what the team has to say and they uh, fit in there. And, and, you know, I think um, if you're a player, you probably understand that you're putting your team in an uncomfortable situation and maybe they're more likely to give you a little bit more money to avoid that situation if you say, hey, I'm coming to the hearing. All right. Um, another it's probably the uh, the sort of most significant um, free agent situation left left unresolved at this point is Prince Fielder. Most of the rumors recently have pointed him towards Texas. Um, what how you know what, what's the sort of status of that right now, and how do you see it working out? Well, I think uh, basically what Scott Boris is doing is just holding Prince Fielder out of the market until you Darvish uh, gets signed or doesn't get signed because that will determine how much money Texas wants to throw at Prince Fielder. I'm not 100% sold that they won't go after Prince Fielder even if they do sign you Darvish. Uh, as Matt Clausen wrote on the site yesterday, they can essentially choose Prince Fielder over Josh Hamilton and say the money we were going to give Hamilton in the extension, we'll just give Fielder now and we'll pay Hamilton lock next winter. Um, but I think you know Scott Boris understands that if the Rangers – uh, don't find Darvish. They're much better players for Fielder than they would be otherwise. So it just doesn't really make any sense for him to find Fielder somewhere else until he knows what the Rangers' uh, financial ability is. And so I think realistically, once Darvish is off the market and his situation is clarified, then Boris will go to the Nationals, he'll go to the Rangers, he'll go to any other teams that are kind of hanging around in the, the mix and say, okay, boys, we've got a week, let's get this thing done. So my guess is 
over the next seven to ten days, Prince Fielder will sign, but nothing's really going to materialize until after Yu Darvish makes his decision. Hey, a, a slightly related note there. Uh, it does seem, uh, especially in the wake of this Ryan Madsen signing with the Reds, which I think was uh, one year, eight million approximately. Yeah, yeah, eight and a half million plus uh, potentially a buyout on the uh, player option for the next year. Right. There's that, and then in addition to uh, in addition to that, there's also the rumors about uh, Oswald getting something in that in that area too, right? Yeah, that's what uh, Buster only said that Oswald's asking prices down to about eight million for one year. Okay, so this is after we've seen early on uh, relievers like Papelbon and and uh, maybe to a slightly less degree, at least in terms of average annual value, but. Uh, not in terms of overall contract, where he did well. Um, Heath Bell. It, it, now we're seeing now we're seeing uh, two very good pitchers, or well, one very good reliever in Ryan Madsen having to take a one-year contract, and then we see uh, Roy Oswalt, who finished the season strong, at least with his, you know, and finished it with his stuff. Is is there a trend generally to uh, overpays, uh, sort of populating? Um, the earliest part of the hot stove era or league, and then towards the end of it, uh, you know, come January, uh, teams getting some bargains? Yeah, I think historically, if you look at the uh, dollars per win by month of the offseason, uh, they're really high at the start of the winter as teams kind of, uh, especially the aggressive teams who identify a player that they want, the player's only going to sign if he gets a deal that is uh, friendly to him. Otherwise, he'll just keep waiting a little bit longer. Um, so the early deals are almost always the most expensive in terms of dollar per win. And at the end of the year, or the end of the offseason, you know, January and early February, there's some real bargains to be found in most cases. Uh, basically, the teams who sit around and wait for the uh, music to stop and say, hey, look, I've got playing time for you, and I'm the only team offering you a contract, they have a lot of leverage. And so they can basically do what the Reds did with Ryan Madsen and say, you want to close? We're the only team in baseball offering you a closer's role. Here's the amount of money we have for you. And he has a choice. He can either go set up for some other team or he can take the Reds offer. And that's what he did. So I think that there's um, certainly some advantage to waiting uh, into January and early February. But I think that we've seen that advantage somewhat erode as I think more teams have realized that this is the historical trend and have kind of taken the wait-and-see approach. So then you end up with five or six teams waiting and seeing and five or six free agents on the market, and you don't get that same kind of leverage. So it'll be interesting to see how long the waiting goes this year. You still have, you know, a decent amount of teams out there that need to fill some holes, and, you know, there's close to 100 free agents who haven't signed yet. So we're getting, uh, you know, a month away from spring training at this point, and there's still a lot of players left in the market. Right, and, and of course, uh, there's, a, there's a possibility that one of them uh, could end up with New York. Uh, I wrote, uh, you know, with regard to the to the DH spot that was uh, vacated by Jesus Montero when he went to Seattle. Um, that you know, probably the most likely thing, or certainly uh, a wise option, would be to just leave the DH spot open um, and allow you know the Yankees uh, to use it for flexibility purposes, especially with older players like Derek Jeter and A Rod. But there, it's also probably wouldn't, it wouldn't be crazy to see them sign anyone from. You know, Hideki Matsui to Johnny Damon to Carlos Pena. Yeah, I don't think they're going to leave the spot open. I think if you, uh, if you look at the Yankees historically, they uh, sometimes make a lot of noise about, oh, yeah, we don't have any money and we're not going to do anything. And then all of a sudden they, you know, oh, by the way, we found $10 million for Carlos Pena. <laughs> like, I just don't buy into the fact that they're going to go into the year uh, with their 
DH spot being Andrew Jones and rotating wheels, Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter and older guys. I think if they were going to um, do something along those lines, uh, then you know they might be more likely to bring in a guy like Matt Sui to kind of um, share time with that. But that just doesn't really strike me as the Yankee MO. I mean, I know that they're trying to keep costs down, but they're they're not penny wise and pound foolish, and they're going to be like, hey, look, we're trying to beat the Red Sox, we're trying to beat the Rays. Uh, this is this team is in win now mode. We've got a lot of older players. If we can get a guy like Carlos Pena for you know ten million dollars, and he can uh, mash right-handers, and we can platoon him with Andrew Jones at DH, that's probably a move that's worth the money for us. All right, Dave Cameron, um, I'm going to let you go momentarily, but before we do, uh, you get to play um, a game that you've played once before on. Uh, Fangraphs Audio, which is Baseball America Questions. Baseball America Questions. <laughs> right? This is where... Uh, yeah. I did really well with the AL East, but we're doing the AL Central now. This is going to be a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what we're doing. And, and the first team you get to uh, to go after... Well, I guess I'll let you do it how, how you want to, because uh, maybe some, some names will come to you more easily than others. Uh, yes, we are in the AL Central. And these are the okay, top so prospects. I'm, I'm, wait, well, let me let me introduce it properly. These are the top prospects. Name the number one prospect for, uh, per Baseball America, the most recent issue of that publication um, per each organization. Okay, so I'll uh, admit that I've seen the White Sox list, which they put online today, so this is somewhat cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the only prospect of note in their entire system, so it wouldn't have been so hard to get because uh, besides Addison Reeves, that farm system is barren and terrible and one of the worst anyone's seen in a long time. So uh, Addison Reed of the White Sox. Now, wait a second. Now, wait a second. I will say uh, that recently John Sickles, uh, minor league ball, put up his list, and he actually has Nestor Molina number one. Yeah, I think John Sickles likes pitching prospects with good stats and mediocre stuff more than he should. All right. Well, I hear the mediocre stuff label applied to Molina. His, His fastball is above 90 miles per hour. It's, it's not, 88 to 92, yeah. Right. So I, I think that, and I think that he also has good secondary stuff in terms of movement. I, I think that, I'll just contend, and you know, I'm not a, a professional, I'm not a prospect maven, Dave Cameron, but I want to ask people to open their minds to the idea of Nestor Molina. He's not, he's not just like a, you know, a, a soft tosser, you know, Tom Malone style. Anyway, that's, that's what I have to say. That's what I have to say about that. Oh, and by the way, do you know about this Johnny Hellweg character? In the Los Angeles Angels uh, organization? I uh, heard the name, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Well, I was uh, doing some research on him. He's like 6'9", throws o- over 90 miles per hour, and then after he was added to the rotation in the California League last year, uh, I think he was you know, somewhat age-appropriate. Uh, uh, he was, uh, I guess, uh, maybe just working more. He cut his walks in halves, half, and he had like 13 Ks per nine. Uh, interesting guy. A lot of velocity and his command improved dramatically. That's great. How did this turn into AL West prospect? Uh, I just came across this name today. It's a totally an aside. It's a, that's an asterisk. All right. So you saw the White Sox list. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, so the Tigers one's pretty easy. That's Jacob Turner. Okay. It is. Right. Yeah. How, yeah. How deep in the in the org do you think you can go? Uh. So Nick Castellanos. Yeah. There you Castellanos. go. Yeah. Uh, number two, Drew Smiley is number three. Bam. Look at this guy. And I uh, probably couldn't name anyone else. All right. Now. Yeah, that's very good, though. That's very good. So, okay, you have the Tigers and you have the White Sox. Two out of five so far? Uh, Indian system. Well, they traded everyone away. So, 
Francisco Lindor, maybe. That's exactly that's exactly right. The uh, they uh, yeah right now Lindor, I don't even think he's had all of 19 at bats in professional ball. He was signed at a high school, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he was a high school shortstop uh, switch hitter with some power. The Mariners were super high on him, but ended up drafting uh, Holton last year instead. Yeah, um, they actually have. There's Lindor, uh, number seven. Ba has t- uh, Tony Walters at shortstop, and they have another guy whose name's like Rene Rodriguez or something. He's another shortstop. They have, I think, three kind of decent shortstoppy type prospects who may not all stick, of course, but um, yeah. that's all sort of interesting. They also have uh, number eight on the Ba list is Austin Adams. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see him or look at his numbers ever. I have not. Uh, yeah, he's eighth on this list, but he was uh, he was much better this past season, and he uh, he has decent velocity too. Um, all right, so there you, there you go. Uh, you're three out of five right now. You still have Minnesota left. Minnesota and Kansas City, right? Yeah. So Kansas City, I'm gonna go with Will Myers. Yeah, Will Myers actually number number three on the list. Really? Yeah. Wow, they love Will Myers. I mean, I know the system's good, but I, I thought I thought they would rate him a little higher than that. Um, man, there's so many options to choose in Kansas City. It's like uh, well, you so you know who their first round draft pick was this last year. They took him out of I think uh, he was yeah, yeah yeah Bubba Starling. Bubba Starling's number two. Okay. And then number one is just one of those pitchers. Mike Montgomery. Yeah, it's Mike Montgomery. I cannot. I will be interested in seeing how they justify Mike Montgomery ahead of Will Myers because. Uh, I mean, you know, Mike Montgomery is a nice pitching prospect, but he's not like Steven Strasburg, and Will Myers is pretty darn good. Yeah, I guess there have been some maybe some questions about um, his uh, commitment, perhaps. Which have well, I mean, I, I, like, so Will Myers went to high school, you know, 20 or 25 minutes away from my house, and I know some people who coached him and have talked to people about him. He's not a good dude in the sense of, like, uh, you know, he's everything that you don't like about guys who are really good athletes in high school and knew it. And, uh, but I don't think that any of the stuff that I've heard about Myers is going to lead me to believe that he's not going to have a good major league career. It's just a guy that I wouldn't want dating my daughter. Yeah, right. How many daughters do you have now? Uh, you know, only one that I will discuss publicly. <laughs> the um, Curious, it looks like he went to high school in High Point, which is exactly where you, uh, where you conducted your interview with the Clubhouse Confidential yesterday. Yeah, he went to uh, Wesleyan High School, which is uh, right across from Ocala Mall, which is uh, just had its Sears and uh, closed down, and I think is uh, totally barren at this point. It might be the most depressing mall in the country. Ooh, yeah. Those um, there was a mall like that in Hadley, Mass, and still there uh, when I was going to grad school and living in that area um, near Amherst in Northampton, Mass. And it was it was a mall that. Had maybe at one point been nicer, but um, another mall, nice, considerably nicer, had opened, you know, within 20 minutes away. So there were just like a lot of. It was strange. Uh, there were definitely some chain stores, but there were also like a lot of weird local businesses that were just given an opportunity. There was one business that did only um, airbrush shirts, airbrush t-shirts. Wow. Yeah, and I got a. I actually got one for my wife uh, that said uh, something like, "My boyfriend is." My boyfriend is what? Crunk. My boyfriend is Crunk, she reminds me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a My Little Pony unicorn on the cover. Wow. Yeah. 
She didn't wear it a lot, it turns out. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, all right. Uh, and then finally... Oh, the twins. Twins, yeah. Uh, I'm, this is a wild guess. Miguel Sano. Yeah, that's exactly right. Manchild. Hey. I think he's referred to yeah. as a manchild. Yeah, he's a apparently good little hitting prospect. Um, yeah, he's listed, or he's played a bunch of short. It looks like he may not stick there. Yeah, I don't think anyone thinks he's going to stick a short song. Do you know who is not number one anymore and has been for like the last two or three years? Is Aaron Hicks. Yeah, he, eventually he's going to have to do something with his tools and build something. Right. Uh, a couple other guys in that uh, system, though, are Liam Hendricks at number seven, uh, who came up and pitched uh, decently. He's, like, very much a Twins pitcher. He gets um, ground balls and throws strikes. Uh, maybe a, all, all the Twins prospects are exactly the same. Kyle Gibson, Alex Limmer, they're all immense the same. Like, the Twins only know how to draft and develop one pitcher. Right. Well, I mean, I guess if they can do it, they should... That's what they should do. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I think, like, uh, you know, in the write-up I did on Hector Noefi on USS Mariner the other day, I pointed out that this kind of uh, pitcher, I think, is generally undervalued and can be had cheaper than usual. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a dominating breaking ball or a huge fastball, I think your your view of, as a prospect is not going to be super high. And if you look at the guys the Twins have developed, you know, the Scott Bakers and the Kyle Loches, and, um, you know, they're not aces by any stretch of imagination but they're all two to three win pitchers who have had really nice careers and you know if you can get those guys uh, without having to pay them huge signing bonuses and you can um, keep them on the field and put a rotation full of those guys out every year you're going to have a pretty good pitching staff hey uh, sort of towards that point Cameron yesterday I was uh, you know talking with Sullivan about Pineda and uh, I had remembered Pineda there was sort of like he had sort of a breakout whether it was the end of 09 or sort of all during the beginning of the 2010 season in the minors. I was yep. looking back at his his scouting reports uh, from BA because they liked him, but he was not like their top prospect. I think he was 10 in right. 09, maybe yep. seven in in 2000 going in 2010. They had his velocities listed at like low 90s. Yeah, he was uh, when he was in the Midwest League. He was basically a strike thrower who was 89 to 93 and would occasionally pop 94. Um, but he was, you know, he's so big that he was one of those guys where they always said, this is the kind of frame that could add velocity. And you hear that, uh, at a lot of guys, and sometimes they never do. I mean, he, he had John Halama and, you know, some of these 6'5, six, 6'6 six, six guys who still throw 88. Chris Young, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes these tall guys never do fill out. And never Mark Hendrickson? Harder, but, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, there's a, a, a lot of tall, soft throwing guys who have been projected to gain velocity, but tonight is one of the cases where it actually happened. He was, low 90s and low minors, and then all of a sudden he got to double-A, uh, and it was 95-96, then he got to triple-A, and it was 97-98. So. Yeah, so this is the thing. I mean, it, there must be a way to tell if a guy will or won't gain weight. Is this – do we not know this science? Is this not something we know? Well, Tomato was always uh, large. I mean, he, he didn't – it's not that he added 50 pounds and showed up to camp after eating a whole bunch of cheeseburgers and threw harder. I mean, he was – big even in the low minors, um, but he was never quite as um, physically athletic as he got to be. And so I think he's kind of like toned more than just gained weight. So I think with a guy like Hendrickson or uh, Chris Young, they're bean poles. Uh, they, there's not strength on them. They're just tall. And so I think that what we've kind of sort of learned with pitchers is that, uh, you know, tall and uh, somewhat uh, – large is better than tall and skinny. So, like, Steven Strasburg is another perfect example. You know, uh, 
went to San Diego State, he was 300 pounds, and he threw low 90s. And then when he turned all that fat into strength and lost a bunch of weight and got a lot more athletic, it was 102. And so it seems to be that uh, tall and skinny is not a great recipe. Tall with a little bit of weight that you could turn into athleticism, that's a better formula for adding velocity. Yeah, that seems like a good one. Because I'd be correct if I'm wrong, but guys who throw mid-90s and have command of their fastball, that is, you know, provided that guy stays healthy, he's a major league pitcher. Yeah, there aren't that many pitchers with 95-mile-an-hour fastballs who can throw strikes who suck. I mean, you know, unless your fastball is just dead on straight, um, if you can throw strikes with high-velocity stuff, uh, your secondary stuff doesn't have to be very good. And, uh, you know, in Pineda's case, he's got one really good secondary pitch um, and one really terrible secondary pitch, and that's good enough to make him one of the best starting pitchers in baseball. If you're, Especially if you're tall. I mean, that helps. The, the length and the release point is closer to the batter. Um, if you can locate 95, 96, and you get some leverage on it, um, you're going to be a pretty good pitcher, even if the rest of your package isn't all that impressive. Talking about impressive packages, once again. You would you would go there. After the Nazi thing yesterday, I thought you were going to clean this up. <laughs> no, it's uh, you're going to keep the listeners on their toes, Dave Cameron. Well, listen, uh, thanks for joining us uh, on Fangrass Audio. And again, uh, congratulations on your on your appearance yesterday. Thanks. Uh, I, I would hope that you would congratulate me on my appearance every day, but um, apparently... <laughs> no, no, do. God, no. no, no I've, seen what, I've seen you. I've seen what you wear <laughs> and what you do. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dave. I will say that the uh, perhaps the most interesting part of yesterday was because my wife had Martin Luther King Day off, so she was very excited to dress me for my television appearance. And she was not a big fan of the clothes that I picked out. So when you when you watch the video and see me on TV, every piece of clothing I was I was wearing was uh, selected by my wife. Yeah, well, you looked. Yeah, the clothing was not the problem, uh, Cameron. No, it's, <laughs> it was uh, the first thing. Yeah. yeah, it was right inside. No, no, actually, I thought the um, was it, it was it sort of like a blue dress shirt with a blazer or something like that. Yep. Yeah, right. I, I actually, thought, uh, I I had a tie too, and I wore the tie there. And as we were getting ready to shoot, uh, one of the guys talked to the producer and said, tell him to take the tie off. So they vetoed my tie. Uh, I don't wear ties very often, and apparently uh, it's not a good look for me. They weren't into it. No, I thought you looked good. I thought you, I thought you looked good. Thanks. All right. Uh, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Testuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Audio.